0: Fun fact, the perfect culinary pairing with the Beaver Tales podcast is chicken cordon blue and the perfect wine pairing to the podcast is no wine at all because you might be driving right now and you shouldn't drink and drive. So keep your eyes on the road and enjoy this episode with Josh Wharton. Thanks for staying safe as you tune in to the Beaver Tales podcast. We have not yet had a guest on this podcast who competed for the men's cross country or track and field programs. Well, today I've got one guy who competed for both, a two-sport athlete. Dick Oldfield is my guest today. He competed for the Beavers in the early 80s. In fact, from 1979 to 1984, he would go on to compete in the Olympic Trials in Indianapolis in 1988. We talk all about his time at Oregon State and Fun stories of his head coach, Frank Morris, getting his athletes to compete at the highest level, including driving a car on the track. Why did he do that? Well, Dick explains why partway through this conversation, as well as his experience competing in the Olympic trials. His story of meeting Michael Jordan while working for Nike, where he's been the last 35 years. He's a true Oregon State beaver. He attended Oregon State. His four siblings were beavers. His father was a professor at Oregon State. His wife went to OSU. Her two brothers went to OSU. Also, Dick and Karen have two children and a daughter-in-law also graduating from Oregon State. So they are a true Beaver family, and Dick was a student-athlete at OSU back in the day. He's also the second guest on this podcast who competed for a program at Oregon State that no longer exists. Earlier, I had Felicia Anderson on this podcast a few episodes ago. She was a woman swimmer. Well, that program got disbanded while she was still on the team. Dick Oldfield competed at Oregon State just a few years before the program was cut in the late 80s in favor of soccer. So I asked Dick about the experience of no longer having the very team he competed for, and he, he brought up the possibility of perhaps that's not the final piece of that story at Oregon State. There is perhaps something to share down the road, but nothing official. But we'll, we'll talk about that in the conversation. Every episode has a charity that we like to promote or a local business that's in need of some advertising. Dick Oldfield himself actually suggested the Heartland Humane Society. He has got a dog from that organization himself. They're a great organization. They're online at heartlandhumane.org. You can donate, uh, give money, supplies. Their number one need, according to their website, is high-quality dry cat food. So if you're one of those people that has a five-gallon bucket of dry cat food in your garage, This is your time to shine. You can help out Heartland Humane Society at this time. All right, here is Oregon State track and field athlete and cross country and a huge Beaver fan. The newest guest of the Beaver Tales podcast is Dick Oldfield. Thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Hey, doing great. It's pouring a rain up here, but we need to get the pollen out of the air, so I don't mind a little rain. It's a good
0: touch. Let's start with, uh, go back to where you came in to Oregon State. You've got a a family connection. Perhaps it started with your father being a professor there. Uh, Take me through where the Oregon State connection started with your family and how you became such a beaver-centric family unit.
1: So I grew up in Corvallis. Uh, Parents, my father was a professor there for many years and Head of Animal Science for a number of years, and super lucky and proud now that the small animal teaching lab on campus, right on 35th, is named after him. He passed away a couple of years ago, but they honored him before the uh, before he died, which he thought was pretty special that he was there for it. But I'm the youngest of five kids. My older brothers and sisters all went to Oregon State, and um, you know it wasn't it wasn't a given since I grew up kind of in athletics and. Was looking around, but it, it uh, was a beaver at heart. Grew up watching, you know, b- back then you could get on the floor at Gill Coliseum to watch basketball games. So watched Lonnie Shelton and Ice-T and when we are number one in the nation, uh, got down on the floor in, in some of those games. And and so very, very great times of growing up in Corvallis as a kid. And, and uh, it just worked out that way that I, I got a track scholarship to continue at Oregon State and to run there. There's a sort of joke, but somewhat reality, at least these days, that
0: people who are from Corvallis say Corvallis and people who come in say Corvallis. Was that the truth when you grew up in Corvallis or Corvallis?
1: Absolutely. And and back then too, I mean, people would just say Corn Valley all the time. And it was, you know, a poke at our ag and sciences, which we're super proud of, engineering, ag all those. Schools are tremendous at Oregon State, and and so I I never really worried about people would what people would call us um, as long as they didn't call us uh, Eugene or University of Oregon, you know, when when they point on the map. So that was okay.
0: So you already had a pretty good familiarity with Oregon State and what being a Beaver athlete meant by the time you arrived at OSU. What was it like to then? compete with the Beaver logo on your chest? Uh, what events were you preparing for? What kind of went differently than you might have expect, expected? Were surprises about being a student-athlete? Take me through a couple of highlights of your four years uh, competing at Oregon State.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would I would say to, to tee it off, I felt really lucky to grow up in Corvallis and and so to see Oregon State and kind of be in their backyard and really lucky that i grew up with um friends like harold reynolds and jim solberg and you know other other great athletes in in Corvallis there and so we kind of grew up and the reason i say that is we grew up uh all expecting to go to college all expecting to play sports in college um and so having oregon state right in your backyard where you could ride your bike to it growing up and Sneak into Parker Stadium back then or sneak into Gill and play. And, uh, you know, I think that set us set us up for what our expectations were coming in. So uh, going in, um, you know, I played football, basketball and and ran track at, in high school and, and uh, played on some really good teams and had some good coaches. So coming in and the first thing uh, on a track scholarship is running 12 months a year. Uh, floored me it was you know putting in those kind of miles back then and um, running all year round and of course you tip it off and fall you run across cross country which you know instead of uh, sprinting 20 yards on a football keeper on an auction keeper I was racing 10k and uh, my coaches knew it so they took it a little easy on me in terms of getting me up to speed but I was you know I you probably hear about it. I was exhausted going into practice every day for a while instead of coming out of it. So those expectations, I had to kind of recheck myself and kind of build a a, a background and a base, just getting uh, going in track and field and um, never deterred my determination. I ran middle distance there. So that was a lot of fun, 800 and 1500. But Holy cow i mean I, I couldn't wait for track season after getting through cross country in the fall and then more miles in the winter you know and and long runs and long hilly runs and um that that just uh you know i couldn't wait to get on the track and run what I thought then was a shorter distance so um, great times track program for us back then um, was growing we had a uh the head coach for me was Frank Morris who was the top assistant at, uh, Oregon and kind of funny side story. I actually went down to Oregon on a recruiting trip. Frank was my host and took me all through the, you know, the attributes of U of O. And of course that's back when they had Salazar and Rudy Chaplin. So, you know, phenomenal world-class program and took it, took me through all that. And then at the end of our visit, he just said, Hey, uh, I want you to hold on here and don't make any decisions and let me call you tomorrow. And I'm like, cool. That's cool. So he called me the next morning and said, Hey, how you doing? I said, great. Uh, He said, yeah, I got some news for you. I'm the Oregon state head track coach now, and I want you to come to Oregon state, not to Oregon. So um, I guess Dellinger got wind of that and you know, whether he wanted me or not, or whether he just wanted to beat Frank out, he called me right after that and said, Hey, you're not really thinking of going to Oregon state, are you? And I said, well, you know, I love the program. I love Frank, love the school. And he said, okay, I'll give you 24 hours to decide. I'm calling you tomorrow at this time. I want a decision. So went out for a long run that day and weighed the attributes and found out later that my mom and dad actually had a secret bet on which, which decision I was going to make. And, uh, but came back the next day and it just felt right. Frank was a great coach, a great motivator. Um, you know, more to me like a, like a, <clears throat> like Chuck Sober, my football coach in high school than um, a track coach. So I I think for me, it was the perfect situation. I thrived under that. I, I went from becoming a football and basketball player to a, to a miler and that wouldn't have happened at U of O. I think it would have been too much, too fast for me down there track wise and um, really thank Frank and, and my teammates for, for getting me up to speed there.
0: Yeah, there's a lot there what your life would have been like if you'd gone to U of O and, and the recruiting part. I mean, you brought up some legendary coaches. Chuck Solberg is a legend from Corvallis High School, maybe not, maybe those who don't know about CHS may not recognize the name, but they should. Uh, Harold Reynolds and perhaps his even better athlete and brother and Donnie Reynolds. I mean, there's a lot of names that have gone through Mike Riley, even from Corvallis yeah. High School and, um, you know, Jay Losi and, and all the all these names. So, what What do you think would it have been like had Frank Morris recruited you to u of o and you had gone there and you'd been a duck what What do you think that would have changed both in your years and and afterwards?
1: Yeah, my family probably wouldn't have talked to me for a while first of all <laughs> so so that's the first kick but um you know Oregon was just at a different level back then and um, I think their depth in the middle distance and distance was huge. And so from what I know, you know, of some friends that were on the duck track team back then, um, you know, they would have tough time trials in the middle of the week just to see who would run in the meet on that weekend. And for me trying to transition from football and basketball to run in full year, um, I think it would have burned me out even, even more so, you know, and, and so I think again, Oregon state, I was able to get up to speed. I was able to add miles. I was able to get the proper training in and and do all that, and you know, ultimately became a pretty good 800 and 1500 meter runner um, because I had a couple of years to kind of to kind of get my base and and kind of learn about the sport and get up to speed fully. So um, would have been would have been uh, a much rougher ride and maybe a, maybe a quicker ride at Oregon and maybe it wouldn't have worked out. So there's been a lot more research
0: development on the science of athletics and what it takes to to rest and recover from performances how much hydration you need and and all these very intelligent intellectual studies that that help us now where back in the day and this has affected all sports i mean football I hear stories of coaches saying you know water's for sissies and you only drink if you're if you're a baby mm-hmm. and, and how we now realize it's probably not the best thing for a coach to say what was it like when you were competing in the early 80s track and feel i'm guessing perhaps the practices the the schedule of what lengths you were running how much recovery time you had afterwards what uh things you had available like ice baths or the hydration what, what was different there where now we may know things to a higher degree How was it different back then
1: yeah uh yeah, I think we were lucky again to have Frank who was pretty progressive in his thinking again being around Dellinger and Bowerman Bowerman was a mentor for Frank Morris so um I think he continually looked for ways to improve our running the other thing that was going on back in the early 80s when when I was running is a whole shift in middle distance and distance running, not only in the US, but globally, where prior to that, people were running, like the best athletes, best runners, marathons were taken off then. So people were putting in mega miles, like running 100 miles, 120 miles a week, 150 miles a week, and really felt that was the way to build strength and ultimately run your fastest times. And, and then you had a guy, Seb Co, Sebastian Co, who came in you know, multi-gold medalist, British world record holder in the 800 and, and the mile for a while. He really built on um, his success on shorter intervals, faster times, high intensity with fewer miles. And again, for, for someone like myself, that was, that was huge and really ultimately helped me uh, run faster. I got better speed. I was still able to build a base. And, and some of my other teammates I think Mark Fricker, who was an all-American 1500 meter that I, a runner that I had the the honor and pleasure of training with I mean he he um thrived on that type of training too so training wise I think we were on on the front end of that which really helped us get to faster PRs and and build that base and then from a training table you know none of that stuff was um that big back then in, in terms of what to eat, now we were running a lot of miles, so at that point, my body I could eat whatever I wanted to and and didn't put on a a pound. I actually lost twenty pounds going into college than I was in high school, so I was one eighty five in high school, you know, playing football basketball track. I was down to one sixty five just because of the high intensity work in in uh at, at o s u so that uh, um, didn't matter what i put in i I will say though that uh you know, Gatorade, we needed tons of water. We knew to hydrate. We knew to drink a lot of Gatorade to replace just things that we were losing through our sweat, um, heavy sweat every day. And budget-wise, we didn't, we didn't get that at OSU. So lucky that we showered. Our shower room was the same as a men's basketball team. So what we would do is we would never shower after practice until the men's basketball team had finished practice because then we would get all their leftover Gatorade and we'd get their soap for our showers too, because we didn't get soap. We just got towels. So um, that was a way for us to like replenish after practice. Wait for the hoop team. They knew us, so they'd bring us their their leftover Gatorade tubs, and we just down that to kind of get back up to normal normal hydrate. So,
0: so you're mooching a little bit off the the basketball <laughs> team. Luckily, they were nice guys, so that's that's yeah. good of them to help you out a little bit. Unfortunately, although you may not know it, have known it at the time is that when you were competing for Oregon State, that was near the end of the entire program It was about four years after you finished, I believe it was 88 or 89 where the track team was disbanded, Um, men's soccer comes in. What was it? What was that experience like although you were able to compete for all four years so it didn't directly impact your student athlete experience but at the same time that was your program that's the team that you loved and competed for both the experience of hearing that news four years later and ever since of you're not able to go and watch you know, meets now. You can't go down to Corvallis other than the occasional football player like Marcus Wheaton, who's run track for Oregon State. But for the most part, you know, there's no design team with regular competitions. What was that like to
1: see your own program no longer exist? Br- brutal, brutal. And and literally lost a lot of my friends in terms of <clears throat> supporting OSU back then once they dropped the program. they uh, We had freshman my senior year. I was there five years I redshirted one year uh freshman Carl Van Kalkar uh who was a freshman my senior year he became the last uh OSU national champion because he won the steeplechase the last year that the program existed in 88 and so um you know we were good friends I was super glad that he got to win a title before the program was dropped but that was really you know really crushing news and we knew that budgets were were uh, tough back then, but still to see you lose the program um, probably ever since. Because I I continued to run after college, and and um, a few of us did. Mark Fricker did, and and Pete Warner and some other guys. And so to see the program go away was huge. And you know we're 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 still trying to get it back. And and someday I you know I I, I know budgets are tight now too, right? But um, at some point we're going to get men's track back. And I, I'm super proud of Louis Quintana and what he's done Kelly Solomon did a great job getting the track program back for women and the track built. That was huge. Um, and then having Louis come in and really um, up the level of recruits that he's getting now and become relevant back in the track world of get, being competitive again. Um, I, I think track is on an upswing. And uh, my hope is that, you know, helping the women get better and better is going to help get the men's program back.
0: It, it, it seems like, although it, it was crushing news for you, if there was any bitterness for Oregon state, it, it seems to have dissipated because you've got a ton of Oregon state memorabilia behind you on your walls. I see it, you know, 2012 football poster of the Jersey, a Pat Casey, Jersey, all this Oregon state stuff and you down the hallway and, And you've been on uh, the varsity OSU director's board. I believe you still are on there representing the track and field program. So your reaction was not to say, all right, I'm done with Oregon State. I'm never talking to you again. What led to that? Why did you, even though the program is done and that for some people, maybe severed their connection with OSU, but you seem to lean back into Oregon State and still pour into the university.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it starts with, uh, Starts with our family and being so tied to Oregon State. <clears throat> my my wife grew up in Corvallis and, and went to Oregon State too. Her dad, Gene Hansen, played football and baseball at Oregon State. And so, you know, it's it's been ingrained in us. And so um, we stayed Beaver fans, albeit, you know, pretty um, upset with the decisions back then, but but slowly got back on board with other sports, football, baseball, basketball. Um, you know, women's gymnastics, women's sports, and and, and so um, you know that kind of got our love back for the school, and um, and and then again, um, you know, got to know Dick Fosbury and uh, Bernie Wagner and and some of the other Beaver greats from back then, and have kind of been on some um, unofficial committees for a number of years, just. Trying, trying to get the program back, and I think we believe that we still will. That it's a, a, a long road back, but um, like I say, you know, supporting. Great to see the women's program back, and we want to continue to help them, and eventually get the men's program back. So I, I think even though the door has been shut for a long time, I think I've always stayed somewhat optimistic. I think Fosbury has, and some other some other people too. So I, I think that helps us kind of hopefully see a light that's still flickering at the end of the tunnel, that, that we can uh, get it back. And everything you read, um, and Coach Riley was a great supporter, and other coaches too, just show the benefit of having track programs. And, you know, if you look at the men's side, uh, like you mentioned, you know, football players getting to, whether they're sprinters or jumpers or throwers, it's a great break for them in the spring to compete track and field. They can keep working out. They can work on their raw skills. And so we, we even back when I was there, you know, we had some of our major contributors be football players. And, and it continues to be a big draw for some football recruits, too, where, hey, if I can run track in the spring and play football the other nine months of the year, I, I want to come to Oregon State then.
0: It's amazing to think that a Dick Fosbury, one of the most impactful track and field athletes in history, is an Oregon State you know, athlete himself and and so I hope that Oregon State does have a chance at some point to to reinstate that program and and if nothing else, for the sake of all the former athletes who have gone through there and for the future ones who could make a similar impact. Um, going back to your memories a little bit at Oregon State before we move on to your Olympic trial experience and then what you've done in life since then with Nike and and everything you've done in the past couple decades since leaving Oregon State. Uh, when you were, were at Oregon State, were you on the team both cross-country and track two-sport all four years? And was Frank Morris your coach in both sports, or how did that work?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, Frank was a head coach. My actually senior year, Frank ended up going down to Arizona State. Chuck McNeil took over as head track coach my last year there. And But even, I think, my senior year with with Chuck there, I think we saw budgets continue to get tighter and tighter. And so maybe that was a prelude to to what was coming down the road. It seemed like one of Frank's main attempts or or one of
0: his main coaching philosophies as the head coach for the track and field team was to get you to compete higher than you would think you would otherwise be able to. And that's what what other more rudimentary flavor of track and field is just the fastest guy is going to win. And it's sure technique is a part of it, but really it's just who's going to work the hardest and push themselves the most. You've told a story before that I've heard of an interesting way he got you to to believe in yourself a little bit more, push yourself beyond your boundaries. How did Frank Morris get his athletes to to push the boundaries a little bit?
1: Yeah, he he knew at Oregon State without a, a big budget, it was going to be hard to win a lot of dual meets. So his philosophy, which I think was correct at the time, was to let's let's get some individuals that can score a lot of points, that can key in, get faster. Take them to invitational so they get some exposure for Oregon State, but also get some great times. And then when you get to those like championship level meets, if you're winning the races or first or second, you're gonna outscore, you know, the next third through six and, and end up with more points. So um he he did a few things to help us try to get faster. when I think about it now, it makes my hamstrings hurt, but um Uh, guy, guy named Bud, Bud Winters was the old San Jose state track coach who coached a lot of the Olympians back in the late sixties. And his, his philosophy was how do you get the mind? How do you train the mind and the body to run faster than they think they can run? So he used to do drills like he would have his, I mean, these are Olympian sprinters too. And and he would have them run down like steep hills where, and, and try to let themselves go to run faster than they think they could run, which sounds dangerous as hell, but, um, that was one of the ways he would train the mind. And so Frank um, tried to emulate that on the track. So he had an old El Camino that he soldered or had somebody at OSU solder a tow bar on the back of the El Camino. And we'd have to put on our spikes, make sure we were warmed up, and then we would hold on to the tow bar at the top of the turn. And he would start driving around the turn and down the straightaway, going a little faster, a little faster. And you had to frickin' hold on to that toe bar. And you literally learned how to sprint, how to get faster leg turnover and go faster and faster. Because you didn't dare let go of the bar. You might eat it. And, uh, and so he would, he would do that. And, and I tell you, it really helped our kick. It really helped our speed. And when you had a few people like a Kashif Hassan, who was an All-American from Sudan that ran with us when I was there, even having him like next to you so you, you can feel someone's smoothness and rhythm when they're running right next to you. So he'd actually put Kashif on next to us at times, too, that would help us continue to work on form while we're trying to run faster than we think we can run. It was easy for Kashif, but for us, it really helped us.
0: It seems especially difficult because when you're sprinting, you're, you you got to pump your arms and propel yourself here. You're holding your arm or both arms out holding onto the bar, so it seems like it'd be even more difficult on that level. But did it work? Did it really make you run faster?
1: Holding on for dear life, man. Yeah, 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 it really did. It helped. Like I said, it helped, your, it helped you run faster, smoother. And by that, I mean like keeping, keeping like your chest and your head calm and relaxed while your legs are churning and, you know, lengthening your your stride a little bit and, and, uh, and not kicking up. So it really did. And, and I think if you look at most of us, myself, uh, Fricker, some other runners, uh, our kick became better and better. And that's how we won a lot of races uh, in the latter part of our college career and and going into post-college.
0: Let's talk about post-college. You graduated in 84. There was, that was an Olympic year in and of itself. You competed in the 88 Olympic trials. Previously on this podcast, I had Felicia Anderson on. She had already qualified for the Olympics as early Olympic trials as a swimmer. It worked out perfectly for her. Now, swimming perhaps has an earlier peak, but it was perfect because she had Practice and competed her whole four years, was kind of peaking at the right time, the year of an Olympic trials, then that gets pushed back to 2021. And she has a choice. Do I compete and train for a whole year and, you know, go compete in the 2021 Olympic trials and put my life on hold? Or do I retire, get a job and unfortunately lose the Olympic dream? And she chose the latter. She chose to retire, even though it was one year that she would have had to essentially set aside you spent four years training. It was the 88 Olympic trials, four years after you graduated. What led you to put the work in, even though you had graduated back in 84? That's a lot of time to train, to run, put it in miles week after week for four whole years. How did that decision to come about and ultimately successfully made the 88 Olympic trials in Indianapolis?
1: So first off, I, I think... Um... Great inspiration was coming close, but not qualifying for the trials in 84. So I came close, but didn't make it. Um, and so that, that inspired me to keep running. Uh, number two was having uh, Mark Fricker, who I've talked about. He lived in uh, Canby, he's in the ag business. And so, and, and I was up in Beaverton, just got a job at Nike. And so we were able to continue to train together um, on our hard workouts. And then getting a job at Nike and being around uh, amazing athletes and co-workers in the sports business where you're thinking about running all the time just kind of naturally kept the juices flowing. So probably 85 when I first got hired at Nike right out of college, um, you know, it, you're kind of adjusting to life. And so that still gave me three years to really hit it hard training wise. And, and uh, Fricker and I trained hard. Of course, back then I'm I'm working Fifty to sixty hours a week in my jobs at, at Nike, and so basically getting out for a run at noon and then uh, running after work too. Um, so you kind of fall into a, a a pattern like that. But because I built a pretty good base at that point, it's it's a workload I can handle. And um, we just you know Mark was faster than me earlier on, and so I kept trying to catch him, and we just kept training together, and and then started started pointing towards. Uh, the Olympic trials in 88. So it was really fortunate to to make it to the trials there.
0: So you compete in the 1500 there in Indianapolis in 1988. To just make the Olympic trials is an impressive accomplishment on its own, even for the people who barely make an Olympic trial cut and have no chance of being in the top three and going on to the actual Olympics itself. For you, how much of a dream was it to not just make the trials, but actually go to the Olympics? How close were you to making that cut? Or were you just in it to have the experience of going to Indianapolis, which is great in and of itself? Where is your mentality at at that point?
1: Yes, I mean, super happy to make it to the trials. I felt once I got there, I could do some damage, probably. I'm not sure in the back of my mind if I knew I could get top three, because there are some, some milers like Steve Scott you know, Jim Spivey, who are some of the best in the world at that point. But I, I thought I could be very competitive going in there. And um, something happened like a month before the trials, uh, they had nationals down in Tampa, Florida, and I got out leaned by literally like two one hundredths of a second to make it to the finals there. So I was like, you know, I, I got to get quicker. So the last month between that and the trials, all I worked on was speed and finishing speed and sprinting. And Um, so then going into the trials, the way the 1500 meter works, got back to Indianapolis, it's three races in three days. So you have prelims, semis, and finals, and each one is a little earlier in the day than the previous day. So you really got to be, you got to have that base, but you got to have some speed. And so going into the prelims, relied on my kick. And, um, I think I surprised, not myself, but a lot of other people made it through the prelims into the semis. And then, um, and a lot of good people start falling off. And again, you think about Indianapolis in July. I mean, it was super hot and humid watching the 10K and the 5K earlier in the week. I mean, male and female, there's athletes like passing out on the infield and stuff during the race. So um, 1,500 shorter race, I was thankful for that, but made it to the semis. And again didn't get into trouble, you know, strategically, I knew how to run um, and left it to my kick. And, and again, uh, ran down three people in the last hundred to get into the finals. So I think at that point I was like pretty, pretty stoked. You know, my parents were there my wife was there. A lot of my Nike coworkers who worked in running were there at the time. And so it was um, it was a dream come true at that point. And, And at that point you don't change your strategy. So going into the final, um, Warmed up the same way, ate the same thing, uh, went through the race and tried to set myself up and was in a decent position with about 200 to go. And, you know, the legs were legs were gone at that point. So uh, I faded to 10th in the final. But uh, to be in that race and again with 250 yards to go to be have a have the potential to still make the Olympic team was um I couldn't have asked for anything better at that point, and and at that point, you know, you always think, well, what if? But I I couldn't think what if at that point because I gave it everything I had at that point. So um, so it again, just a, an amazing experience back there. To run the fifteen hundred is as
0: physically and mentally taxing as it gets. To have to do it twice in Indianapolis, I I don't blame you for losing a little bit at the end there, but that is impressive. One of the main things that I always discuss with guests on this podcast is what happens after the playing career is done. And you had talked about, you putting in all the work at Nike and you're still really competing hard to train, really putting a lot of dedication into that. You go to Indianapolis and you finish and uh, you don't move on to the Olympics. So essentially that's it. And I'm guessing you weren't really training much. Maybe you ran recreationally, but a lot of it was was done right there. And it's fairly a successful ending, but that that was it so where was your emotional stability after that where was your identity after that what were you finding um meaning in after that and, and how did the transition go to wow i'm i'm no longer an athlete that's not who i am anymore
1: yeah you know it's a big deal for so many people so many athletes as you kind of wind your career down how, how do you channel that into something else and so for me you know when you first when you first stop it's like Okay, you've been intense for, you know, multiple years. So the break is really nice. But after a month, literally, you're kind of like itching, okay, I should be starting this up again, I should be starting my training again, I should be watching what I eat a little bit and all that kind of stuff. And so had to really look at what I channeled that into. And I channeled it into my job at Nike. And and again, passion is sports and and, um, not just running, but not just track and field, but a lot of different sports. And so being able to work, I was in an area they call footwear development. And so I was working with designers and product managers on how to create the next line of shoes. And um, at that time was kind of moving into um, basketball and and work with great athletes. And so I, I was able to kind of channel my passions and enthusiasm into making great shoes for athletes that were still in their prime and still trying to compete and, and uh, kind of being, just being around that culture, I think, helped me through it. If I, you know, no disrespect, but if I had gone into another line of work, like insurance or something like that, it, you know, for me personally, it just, I wouldn't have been able to transfer those Passions and creative juices, but but this was the perfect transition for me.
0: Let's uh, let's kind of close with with what you've done in your job. I've been 35 years roughly that you've been at Nike, and and congratulations on that. By the way, as far as how your professional career has gone and what you've been able to accomplish, take me through a little bit of kind of day to day what projects you work on now, what your job looks like, and kind of the the highlights of what you've been able to do in your time at Nike.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been super blessed to work at Nike for 35 years and always been on the footwear side, um, which is pretty cool. And that's where that's where my passions lie around just trying to inspire people and help them realize their dreams every day, whether whether you're just a jogger or whether you're Michael Johnson or whether you're Michael Jordan. So, um, you know, it's been it's been a blessing to work. I've worked in a lot of different categories. as a developer, like I just said, as a product marketing manager, as an innovator, um, been really super blessed to work with amazing athletes like Michael Johnson in the 96 Olympics and his gold spike with Michael Jordan on the Jordan 6 and Jordan 7. So yeah, that really dates me when you think how many Jordans there are now, but, um, you know, got to meet Michael and work with him and and work with unbelievable minds like Tinker Hatfield and Peter Rupi, who were the marketing and design team for Jordan back then. Um, So, you know, that's really cool. Worked in tennis for a while, which you think, hey, football, basketball, track, what are you doing in tennis? My tennis jobs have been some of the best ones I've ever worked on and studying what tennis players need and working with Serena Williams and Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and so, again, just feeling their passion and energy. And when you get exposed to people who can do something in the world better than anyone else, you just can't help but be inspired uh, to help them and to to help them continue to be the best or to get higher than they even think they can get. So um, I've done a lot of different jobs and really been blessed to work with athletes. And then along with that are just crazy people that I get to work with at Nike. And, and you know, you, you might have a meeting with someone at Nike and you think, Hey, you know, they're whatever, a designer. Hey, that's cool. And then you find out later, oh no, they were an Olympic cyclist, you know, eight years ago and won a silver medal. And you're like, holy crap, man. You know? So again, I continue to get um, inspired every day. One one quote my dad said to me was uh long time ago was just, I hope you can find something you enjoy to do for your job every day. He says, I can't wait to get up in the morning and go to uh, OSU and whether it was teaching a class in animal science or being the head of the department, he says, I can't wait to get up and go to work today. And I hope you can find a passion like that. And I've been really lucky to, to be able to live out my passions like that.
0: That's pretty great. Let's, uh, final question or two. It seems like you're a big Oregon State fan and sports beyond track and field. Do you have a favorite Beaver moment or game uh, let's say this century, a football game you watched on TV, a baseball game you went to, uh, any particular game stand out as being the most memorable, momentous, inspirational?
1: Yeah, so two. So I, I know you said one, but two. So two years ago, my, my wife and I made the uh, 11th hour decision to go back to Omaha and watch the Beavers once they were very superstitious. And so when they lost the first game in Omaha that year, we're like, okay, we're not, we're not going to get on a plane and go. Then they kept winning, you know, got through the the loser's bracket in. And once they beat Mississippi State to go into the final against Arkansas, that Saturday night, we literally like went online, found tickets, booked them. I think we had three layovers. Got there, made some calls to get some tickets and got in a hotel, actually got in the Beaver Hotel. So going back and watching the World Series and watch them win, especially that game two come from behind miracle was unbelievable and that's my wife and I still like can't believe we were there to see that in person so so that was huge and then the other the other shining moment is a fiesta bowl and going down to Arizona to watch the beavers just pound on Notre Dame and that whole experience and my my in-laws were both alive back then Gene Hansen and Helen Hansen so we were with them and um and our kids, of course, were little kids. And we had family friends there. I think they said something like 30,000 Beaver fans showed up in in uh, Tempe that that week. So um, huge to watch uh, the Fiesta Bowl live with them. And, and literally in the third quarter when the Beavers go on that 19-point run to just blow out Notre Dame and put the game out of hand. My And it's, you know, cheers everywhere my father-in-law leans over to me and he just says, Dick, are we in beaver heaven? And that just rings true, man. That was just a golden moment for us.
0: There's some really fantastic moments. And those are two of the biggest beaver games ever national championship fiesta bowl. That's the peak. And and you were there at both of them and got to be a part of beaver sports as an athlete yourself. So um, thank you so much for talking about your beaver memories. Good luck with uh, your future at Nike and continuing to support Oregon State. And, Dick, thanks so much for your time and coming on the podcast. I really
1: appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Josh. Go Beavs.
0: It's so fun to see Oregon State student-athletes who became fans of the Beavers in sports other than the ones they competed for. And clearly, Dick Oldfield cares about all Beaver sports, not just track and field and cross-country. Although even those, although he pointed out there's nothing official, but he is hoping to perhaps make a movement to get those sports reinstated. That is an uphill battle, but who knows? And and I believe he cares enough to really make waves in that area. It's also really interesting to get his thoughts on the mental side of track and field, pushing yourself really hard and getting the most out of yourself as an athlete, the highest potential you can tear out of your body. It's also a conversation I'll have with our next guest on the podcast that releases Monday, a national champion with Oregon State. That's Kyle Nobeck of the baseball team just a couple years ago part of that 2018 championship squad. So that's another one to look forward to and more conversations scheduled as well with the Beaver BeaverTales podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, let me know, drop a rating. Even if you hated it and you want to give me one star, hey, at least you're honest. Or you liked it in five stars, that's fantastic too. And uh, I hope you can rate it and help other people. Find it as well and enjoy some Oregon State memories and the lessons that people have learned ever since they competed for the Beavers. Shout out to local musical artist Caleb Wurtz for making some of the music on this podcast. I'm Josh Warden. Thanks for tuning in to the Beaver Tales Podcast.